You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Hey there, and welcome everyone to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the Extreme History offices speaking in person with Betsy Gaines Quammen a historian and author of American Zion, Cliven Bundy, God, and Public Lands in the West. We are so excited to talk with Betsy, but first, let's check in. Crystal, how have your last few weeks been? I think it's been more than a week since we've done a podcast. We've been off for a few weeks here, and you know, it's been fun. One of the highlights I wanted to talk about was the Montana Archaeological Society meetings. Um, Usually... Pre-COVID, we would have a, a fun conference, a fun like three or four day conference. I do miss that. It's been I, a while. I miss it. And so, but this year, instead of doing a full on conference, we just did a one day. And it was so great to see people that, of course, they haven't seen for a couple of years and to reconnect and to find out what everyone's doing, all their different projects and all their different archaeological excavations and and public projects that they're working on. So it was really, really fun. And there was quite a a large group of people who gathered, didn't know if there would be, so I'm glad that there was. And they, um, the board had a board meeting. So it was basically a board meeting, which sounds kind of boring, but (laughs) but it was actually really fun, you know, and making those decisions for an organization that, that I love. And I know you love too, Nancy. So, um, so it was really great. So that was one of the highlights of the last couple of weeks. For the next conference? Yes. Yes. So the next conference will be in 2023 and it is going to, um, hopefully be at Fairmont Hot Springs. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. That'll be a new location yeah. for MAS. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty exciting. A bunch of archaeologists in the hot springs. Yeah, there it's we go. It's going to be a party. For it, sure. it will. Yeah. <laughs> so, Nancy, what about you? What's been going on with you these last mm-hmm. few weeks? Yeah, a lot, right? So, um, we had an opportunity to open a little um, little mocha over across from campus next to Columbo's. And we're so excited with the folks there. Um, Seth and Cassie, who own Columbo's and the building that it's in, have been amazing in helping us get set it, um, settled there and set up. I was just climbing on the roof two days ago to take down <laughs> a very old optometrist sign and met our neighbors on the other side who are going to be opening a bakery and um, a wine and beer shop. So it'll be sort of coffee and baked goods in the morning and then wine. So I'm going to have a bakery, pizza on one side, (laughs) alcohol, and then there's a weed store also in there. So I think think our chances of success are pretty good. 
So we are excited about that opening, which we had a soft opening and we're going to be doing some promotions um, for MSU students and for tweens and stuff. So is it women's clothing? It's Uh, all women's clothing and and tween in there. Okay. Absolutely. So it's a mini mocha, but it's adorable. It's like a a little jewel over there. So we're excited about that. And then... Um, we will be opening, I think, tomorrow, um, Alloy, which will be our men's clothing store. It's in the space where Hattie Rex had um, their shop. And so I purchased Hattie Rex and will still be making all their wonderful pet tags and jewelry. We have people on staff who um, are fully capable and we've in- inherited some of their existing staff. But we're turning the storefront into a space for men's clothing and men's jewelry. And the other jewelry will be, for women, will be housed in mocha. So all the same wonderful products. Um, we hope it'll be a new great addition to uh, Bozeman downtown shopping scene. It'll have a very different vibe than Revolver and Chalet and some of the other some favorites. Of the other, um, be a little stores. younger, a little more edgy, although my husband has already got his eye on several things I have in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's 50. Yeah, so, um, I was just going to say not that much younger. <laughs> so look for, look for information about that. We're very uh, excited, and um, all of this is happening sort of all at once. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You, our, life is never dull for you, Nancy. There's always something happening. I crave I crave a little dullness. I'm hoping this summer is really boring once <laughs> I get to July. So we'll see. <laughs> well, we should probably get back to our guests. Yes, so, yes. so Betsy, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Crystal and Nancy. It's been it's fun hearing about what you all are doing. And I have to say, the store sounds amazing. The bakery sounds amazing. And Hattie Rex sounds amazing. All my dog tags are from Hattie Rex. Aren't they great? They're great. They're They're so... It makes you just want to get a new dog so you can get a new tag. We just got a new dog. So (gasps) we have three now. I know. Now, is it the same breed that you've always had? It's a half Borzoi, half Golden Retriever. Oh. And it came from Blackfoot, Idaho, from the... Um, animal shelter there. Oh, oh he's such wonderful. a sweetheart. Yeah. How old is your doggy? Do you he's know? He's now five months. Oh, oh my gosh! So it's a pup. Just a he's little a puppy. Baby. Yay. Yeah. That's what I mean. So okay. that's so anyway. Well, if you need a new tag, you I, know I'm, I'm on my way in there as, <laughs> as soon as this podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Betsy, we're so excited to have you here, and we want to start off as we always do by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Dr. Betsy Gaines Quammen, such a pleasure to say Dr. Betsy Gaines Quammen, because I was actually at your defense, which was wonderful. She is a historian and a conservationist. She holds a doctorate in environmental history from Montana State University, and her dissertation focused on Mormon settlement and public land conflicts. She has studied various religious traditions over the years with particular attention to how cultures view landscape and wildlife. The rural American West, pastoral communities of northern Mongolia, and the grasslands of East Africa have been her main areas of interest. So welcome, Betsy. Thank you so much for having me. This is I've been doing podcasts on American Zion, but this is the first one I've done in person. And it's actually really fun to be seeing you, beautiful ladies across the table. It's, women. It's so yes. nice. Academics. Right? Yeah. Ladies is fine. We'll take any we'll of take, yeah, we'll I take ladies, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so fun to do them in person when we can. Um, most of the time we're doing doing them on Zoom, which is great too, yeah. to be able to have Zoom, but you know, in person is the best. 
I and, agree. And yeah. it's great. And it's it translates, great. I think, to yeah. the listener's experience also. So, yeah. 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 So, um, Betsy, we wanted to talk with you a little bit about how you came to this research and how you came to this work. And so talk a little bit about your road to environmental history and then your road to writing about this mix of cultural culture, religion, and the West. Sure. Yeah, my my road was a circuitous one. I uh, I was working in this building. That's right. Yes, you said that I, right I, when you came in. So you... I and I'm I'm really excited to be in this building today. I was working in this building for an environmental organization, and I worked on grizzly bear and bull trout protection. And um, I really felt like um, the organization is was a wonderful organization and is a wonderful organization that they're now based in Helena. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I really felt like we weren't reaching broad audiences with these messages, and um, we were essentially talking to one another. We you know everybody um, that I spoke with talked or excuse me looked like me and voted like me and I thought that was not particularly effective so I began to think about how do you how do you reach broad audiences how do you build coalitions and I started working with religious organizations Um, and that took me into Mongolia working with uh, Buddhist monks on um, fisheries conservation. And as a matter of fact, I uh, am going to be doing a um, conference in the next couple of weeks with the these networks that I still work with in Mongolia. I'm, I'm speaking at a, a Mongolian Buddhist conference um, that I will be doing on Zoom. I, I won't be in person, <laughs> no. although I was going to be teaching a class there this summer on Mongolian Buddhism with our Mongolian monk partners. But um, because of the Ukrainian um, oh, and the ticket price yes. ticket prices are expensive, oh, so and, expensive. and COVID's still really sort of weird, especially if people were flying through China. So that's been put on hold, but I still um, have you know really great relationships over there. And and I realized that um, well, we realized as a team working with these these llamas, um, these scientists from University of um, Nevada Reno, oh. that. Messages were more pertinent in these communities if they came from local traditions, sure. uh, rather than going in and saying, you know, you got to protect a minimum viable population of your taimen, which was the salmonid, this trout that we were working on. Um, there was a sutra that said the death of one taimen, which is the fish, equals the souls of 999 people suffering. Wow. And when you bring across messages that resonate with various cultures, uh, depending on where they are geographically or or, um, what they believe, their particular worldview, that's when you start to build better coalitions. It's it's a way of engaging the community and and understanding them. And and it's way more effective. Um, And I've, you know, of course, I'm talking to you, and I'm sure that sounds really obvious. But for me, it was, well, I better go back and really review how I communicate with people, uh, if I want people to be good conservationists. And so my, uh, my original idea was to do my dissertation on Mongolian Buddhism and right. conservation, right. but it would have taken me a lot longer to learn to access primary texts mm. in Mongolian. Um, and I, you know, I, I mean, I, I have this really dorky joke, which is mini, mini Mongol health more. 
which is the only Mongolian I speak, which means my Mongolian sucks. Uh, <laughs> so, well, well said. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I've been, I've been told I have kind of a good accent. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I you, you say know, that one like a native, right? Yeah, I, know. I do. I just I love to throw that out. And I do throw it out, and then people start just rapid fire speaking to me Oof. in Mongolian. So, um, no, I'm like, really, mini Mongol health mo. Um, uh, so, um, I, I decided that I needed to do something that I could access primary text um, and read it. And lo and behold, um, m- you know, Mormon history is a treasure trove. It's in English, and it is absolutely, as a historian, it is dizzying in the amount of material oral traditions, you know, letters, uh, I, I mean, church doctor. I mean, it, it was so incredibly wonderful as a historian, and it was so different in terms of the way environment was perceived. Mm-hmm. So, so the way that um, uh, LDS or Latter-day Saints see and appreciate landscape was was very very different than you know even Christian evangelical groups that we were working with Jewish groups Muslim groups um, we worked with um, we worked with the Sikhs uh, and then we worked in Mongolia with these Buddhist monks we worked in Bhutan with Buddhist monks uh, but the Mormon worldview was very different and I had to as a conservationist you know sort of step back and and look at how landscape was perceived and in this case how landscape was perceived and in some ways started these land use wars right and that must have been a little more challenging I just think first of all to your point that it may seem obvious to us when you when you said that I think it's to me when I first heard of your work in looking at religion and conservation and environmentalism I was um really intrigued by that idea and hadn't heard a lot of discussion and research about it. And and it, it right away seemed like a very smart approach because it does take you to the heart of core belief systems that groups have. And then I think that would be something you're prepared for when you're going into Bhutan or Mongolia or somewhere else. But to be in your own country I would think you think, oh, I share an American culture, even though these this group of people is Mormon. I would think it would actually take an extra effort to sort of remember that there could be very different worldview there that you were accessing and to be hyper aware of whatever bias I might be bringing if I were doing it. So I think that's fascinating. Um perspective it it was you know it, it, I knew nothing about Mormon history or culture I mean almost nothing and uh, and it was really fascinating and you know this is a uniquely American religion Absolutely. I mean that came out of the second great awakening you know we, ha- we I mean I you think of the ones that came out of that Mormonism Seventh-day Adventists, um, Shakers, right. which, you know, they believe in abstinence, so they're no longer with us. Um, so the it, Odinians. It, yep. um, but this was, this, and this religion came out of that fervor of the Second Great Awakening, which was, you know, all speaking in tongues and brimstone and fiery preachers. And, and, uh, and this religion has not only remained, but it is thrived. Yes. Um, and they have some incredibly good Mormon academics. I mean, I, I have been 
unbelievably impressed with um, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that are academics at either BYU, University of Utah, um, also Utah State. Rigorous, brilliant. Um, I, I mean, I just, I've, I've really liked uh, interacting with, with Mormon scholars. My husband's um, photography work in which he collaborates with scientists, and it's all focused around environmental subjects, retreating glaciers, um, deep time ways of understanding the earth and what the scientist work is doing. And so his work is these massive images that are then annotated by the scientists that he's collaborating with, whether he's climbing to the top of Kilimanjaro, photographing glaciers that they're researching, or whether he's um, uh, photographing uh, bristlecone pines, some of the oldest trees and and that work. But um, he was given a show in Rexburg, and it's a Mormon, completely Mormon um, university there. Rexburg. Exactly. And he he was so um, impressed also, as you say. So um, very open and interested, and people who say, well, I'm a scientist, and the way they're approaching the information. So very interesting complex, complicated, I think, um, culture and approach to understanding the world that has this pretty short history, as you say, that you can access. I love that you said Mm -hmm. in so many different ways, whether it's church records, uh, actual, you know, Bibles that are have been written, as well as oral histories and and other documents. We're so close to that origin point of this religion. You Mm -hmm. know, if you think about that, too, that you're writing something about this religion, and it's in its infancy, really. So completely. And and I think that that's been... um, really wonderful Uh, you know and it also I mean I'm right now okay this is the coolest thing I am part of a watch group with Sunstone which is a a wonderful magazine um, that that comes out of you know Mormon culture and just really I mean I know that if somebody is listening and they're a, a big reader of Sunstone they might take issue of the way I explain this but I think of it as the Utney reader of mm-hmm. Mormon culture I just think it's it's so great and I'm doing a watch party um uh, with under the banner of heaven and it and oh, the yeah. the members of this watch party it's like 3000 people wow. and it's and it's um it's devout um members of the church of jesus christ of latter day saints um uh, it's m- people who are disgruntled who've left mm-hmm. the church it's mm-hmm. academics it's non mormons um and it is i have never seen a social media format platform that is so cordial that is so well, um, each point is so well articulated. Mm-hmm. Everybody's so extremely knowledgeable. It's a blast. Wow, and, interesting. Um, and it's, it, it includes Brenda Lafferty's sister, uh, Brenda Lafferty being a woman who was murdered. So this is Under the Banner of Heaven, and where is it on um, Hulu? It's on, it's on Facebook. Oh, Hulu is, is the, is this the, the series is this, on Yeah, Hulu? and then this is, that, is a okay. Facebook discussion group. so then group. you watch, and then everybody... And then everybody That's pipes so interesting. in. It's, wow. Wa- it's That's a wonderful. great book. A book by, is it John, John Krak- Krakauer? John Krakauer, yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. I, I love that book, and yeah. I love John Krakauer's yeah. writing. The church took issue with it mm-hmm. um, in, in some regards. So it's, it, it's just a really interesting format to see how these things are playing out and the arguments that are happening. Yeah. But everybody's so impeccably respectful of one another. Oh, how wonderful. And, um, but you're, you're seeing, um, in any case, I don't want to get too off, um, too off the path, but I just really think that, um, 
because it's such a new religion and people are so well versed in the history of the church, they really, the, there are so many really, really knowledgeable uh, members of LDS um, that, that have incredible interest in, in history yeah. um, that you're seeing these discussions and they're extremely rich and well-informed. Wow. So, well, that's something maybe we can even throw a yeah. link up to yeah. um, when we post this on um, their Facebook page. Yeah. So let's, let's turn now um, to your book, American Zion, Clive and Bundy, God and Public Lands in the West, which was published originally in 2020, but you said it's also in a second printing. It's going to be. Nice. So yeah, to. which is really... Congratulations. Thank you. That. That makes me so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so your book explores the ideas of Mormon family, the Bundys in particular, their conflicts that a lot of people know about because it's been in the media with the federal government over grazing leases on public land. You discuss in the book the history of the Mormon religion in relation to land and in relation to work ethic and industry. And you bring then this history to the present discussing how the Bundys and families like theirs have been mixing spiritualism, patriotism, and wilderness to assert possession over Western federal lands. Um, so to start off by telling us a little bit about how the Mormon church ended up in the West, because it didn't mm -hmm. officially start there, um, in what we now refer to as Utah, uh, what is now legally Utah, and also talk about, if you can, the people who occupied that land prior to Mormon settlement. Yeah, those are great questions. So, and and I think that that really sets up the, the thesis of the book, which is competing notions of um, sacred space. So you you had the Southern Paiute who lived, again, there, there are any number of tribes that were living um, in what came to be known as Zion, um, which is sacred Mormon homeland. Right. That was promised by Joseph Smith. He was told by God, this was a prophecy, that the Mormon people would have a sacred homeland, that they could settle and they could be safe in practicing this new religion because there was quite a bit of oppression in the United States. And um, they were first in upstate New York and then they were in Ohio. And then they planned on building Zion in Missouri. Well, the Mormons were abolitionists, so they came to a state that were, they were slave, there were slaveholders there, and there was a big concern on the part of slaveholders that the Mormons were going to vote in um, abolitionists. And so they were essentially run out of the state. I mean, it was it was a brutal chapter in Mormon history, mm, and yeah. um, there were there was yeah. a, a massacre at Hans Mill, uh, where children were killed, where adults were killed by by these Missouri mobs. They ran the the Mormon people into Illinois, uh, and that's where Joseph Smith was going to establish Zion in uh, Nauvoo, and. Um, a number of things happened at this point. I, I mean, as I explained in my book, I, I really think that he began to um, become power hungry. Mm -hmm. And the Mormon people would disagree. I mean, I, I you know, and, and that I think is fine. There's different ways of viewing this. But he was running for president. He was yeah, telling right. people that um, that men were gods. Mm -hmm. he, 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 at this point 
put forth his idea of polygamy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, so, and he said even God had been a man at once, right? And that men could become gods or things like that. So he was really saying some yeah. things that were lots of people were taking issue with. Right, right that they thought were heretical. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he had internal strife as well as external. Uh, there were a number of non-Mormons in the area who wanted him out of there. And there, there was a occurrence where the the people within his church that were really um, unhappy with polygamy in particular, but also this doctrine um, about God as men, uh, they they published a newspaper and uh, and uh, condemned Joseph Smith, mm-hmm. but not the church. And Joseph Smith got angry. He destroyed the printing press, um, and there was a you know the state intervened. Um, he was he was sent to jail, uh, and then he was killed. He was murdered, um, and so when that happened, Brigham Young took over mm-hmm. and took the Mormon people from this region to the West. And at that point, it was still Mexican territory. So he wanted to take them out of the United States. So the Mormons have a very long history of anti-government sentiment. So they brought Zion. Mormon homeland with them, this promise that God gave them a territory to practice the religion safely. That came to the Great Basin and the Colorado Plateau. There, there were plans, this this state of Deseret, to, to occupy um, the space essentially from Mexico all the way up through Oregon. And, um, and it, that's why when you go to Idaho, uh, that there's still Mormon homeland there because that see. was that yeah. was where part of that young. whole yeah, yeah. That okay. makes sense he was now. he yeah. was sending people yeah. to settle in those areas mm-hmm. so anyway uh, that's how um, Mormon homeland was established but it was established over sacred land that be- belonged in the case of the territory I'm talking about where the Bundys live, the Southern Paiute people. Okay. okay and that's it more, in, is that more in Nevada? That's or in Nevada that, and okay. Utah. And Utah. Right. Okay. And, and, uh, and the, the Southern Paiute were a, uh, people who did not have horses. So they were really vulnerable to other tribes that had horses and they were, um, kidnapped. They were sold as slaves, but, the Ute sold them. Right, uh, that was a tribes, near, yeah. nearby. Mm-hmm. But they believed that the God, that God, their God, had given them the land, and that it was the best land. And instead of settling the land, which is the way Joseph Smith said, in order to make a place ter- uh, sacred, it needs to be built. With the um, Southern Paiute, the land was sacred because of its abundance. And so it wasn't a built landscape. It was a landscape that you traveled through seasonally, harvesting various food uh, and um, and hunting various So very wildlife. different mm-hmm. notions of sacredness right. tied to the land but and in what way you honored or enjoyed that sacredness. Absolutely. Right. Uh, the, the, the similarity is that God bestowed the land to both Mm -hmm. these groups. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the way that the Mormon people uh, utilize the land and they build around water sources and they they farmed areas that had this natural uh, food source, they 
the, the there were there are very few southern Paiutes still today because mm-hmm. they essentially starved them. They mm-hmm. could then not sustain their life way right. of moving right. through the land anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It's it's a beautiful culture. And uh, the way that they moved across the land, they would sing these salt songs. That's if you ever have a chance to look into wow. the history of of the Southern Paiute, it was it was a, a moving. They were they were they would move along the landscapes. They would harvest and then the ways they'd sing these gorgeous salt songs. Um, and it's just it, it, I, I had the great pleasure of um, interviewing um, some Southern Paiute and their amazing people and they they survived i mean you know there's they have survived they're not very many southern paiute uh enrolled today but but there are some wonderful people who are extremely um very very invested in their culture was it a violent conflict when mormons came to that area where the paiute were or were there um were they working to adopt Paiute into their belief system and, oh. and settle them on the land and into their church? That's a great question. The Southern Paiute, probably more than any other tribe, um, were, I mean, there's still many Southern Paiute Mormons today. Mm-hmm. The Navajo also converted mm-hmm. to Mormonism, but it was, it, the, the relationship that the Mormons had with the Southern Paiute is, is different in the sense that the Mormons did offer some protection from these slave raiders. Right. Uh, and um, and so um, that was an advantageous relationship. There were um, Southern Paiute who um, who did convert, as I said, um, and uh, and there were also. Um, there's a very, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the history of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Okay. Right. There was collaboration. Uh, you on discuss the, that in yeah, your book. Yeah, yeah. on the part of um, the Mormons and the Southern Paiutes in, in that um, massacre uh, where 120 people moving through the territory Arkansas, right? from yeah. Arkansas yeah. were, were mor- murdered. Um, so... There is a history with the Southern Paiute and, mm-hmm. and the Mormons. Um, yeah. An intermarriage uh, between the two? There was some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was some for sure. Yeah. Well, that history is fascinating. And, um, you know, I had no idea about most of that, you know, with them in Missouri, with the Mormon Church in Missouri and Illinois, and then coming out here into this place that was not the United States at that point, you know, mm-hmm. coming into this into these territories. So that was that part of the book was really fascinating to me. But I want to move a little bit and talk about um, some of the terminology that you use, Betsy, in the book, and you some of the terminology that you unpack in the book, which I think is really, really important for us to better understand. And one of those words that you use is the word cowboy. And so, you know, there's a lot of mythologies in the West, and there's a lot of myth um, out there. And we talk about this all the time on yes. the podcast. Oh, yeah. And, um, and one of those things that we talk, we end up talking a lot about is that idea of the cowboy. And the cowboy today is really such a dominant mythological figure in the West, symbolizing things like self-sufficiency, um, the, that silent strength and individualistic freedom. But in reality, and you talk about this in your book so well, you talk about the cowboy in that he was a person who worked for a boss. He was, you know, told where to go, when to go, and how just to go. Just a hired hand. <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. just a hired hand, you know. So um, really kind of different. And then also cowboys in the West were often, um, they 
they're often now depicted as white, but often they were black or Latino. And so um, a lot of different, um, not always the white cowboy, the white stoic cowboy that we um, often see depicted. So I want you just to talk a little bit about that. And that's going to kind of set up some things that we talk about later, that okay. that mythology right. of the West, but the mythology more specifically of the cowboy. And and there were also indigenous cowboys and yes, are indigenous yes. cowboys. And, still, uh, and, still and so, yeah. you know, the, there are a number of ranchers that, that are um, native people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've read that a third of the cowboys out west were black. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that we forget. I also there were, and this doesn't, this isn't something I write about in American Zion, but uh, but there was a huge population of Chinese people who were working on the. They weren't cowboys necessarily, but we do think of the West as white, and we were historically a very diverse place. And so, I think that's really important to to um, emphasize and remember. The cowboy is interesting because, as you said, yeah, the cowboy was just a hired hand. And the way that that image has been elevated um, and and mythologized is is really interesting. And I, I think about the Bundys in particular. So American Zion is about the history of why the Bundys launched their um, war. And, um, and they're ranchers in uh, Nevada. And they, uh, in... 1993, Clive and Bundy stopped paying grazing fees, and he illegally grazed his cows in this part of the Mojave Desert that has a long history of Mormon uh, settlement, but, you know, it's also southern Paiute land. So the Moapa band of the southern Paiute live right next to Clive and Bundy's place. And I, when I met with um, with the, I think his name is Greg Anderson, It's I, I, it's been a while since I've written this book, but he talked about ranching in that area too. And it was really important to him, you know, when, when I said something about, well, cows maybe shouldn't be in the Mojave, he said, well, they are fine in the Mojave, and I used to ranch there, you know, growing up, uh, and um, and talked about essentially his right to ranch the land as an indigenous person. So I, I, I really have found that people have different um, ways of perceiving the land, just like we talked about before the, before the podcast. But one of the things that the Bundys have done is they've really embraced this cowboy myth as the good guys, the white hats. And... Um, when the first standoff happened in 2014 with the federal government and the federal government came in to confiscate the cows that had been illegally grazing there, uh, they were able to engage 700, uh, between 750 and 1,000 members of the militia. And I think that there was a real interest in jumping in and fighting this battle because of the cowboy mythology. Here we are, we're having a standoff in the West with the government who's heavy-handed and you know we're with these family and uh, we're with this family and they're facing cattle rustlers which right. is literally what they were calling the government. Wow. And mm-hmm. so yeah. so it was so wild west mm-hmm. and when they the the government did back off because it was very very close. There were to guns being, everywhere. There, there were guns everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, aimed at each other, law enforcement and the militia. And when the government backed off, Ryan Bundy, Clive and Bundy's son, said. 
the West has now been won. So it goes back to that Western mythology of the West has been won. I mean, that's the gunslingers and the... It's, it, that's colonial settlement. That that's that's the Indian Wars, and so um, I think that that mythology plays so much into the Bundy story. The other thing that's very interesting is when Ammon Bundy was in court in, at the you know during the Malheur. Uh, this was in mm-hmm. Portland over the Malheur occupation, which happened t- two years after the standoff in Nevada. He wanted to wear his cowboy hat and cowboy garb, his outfit in court. He wanted to dress as a cowboy because he felt like that was so important in terms of optics. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to be in his prison jumpsuit. He wanted to be dressed as a cowboy because he really felt like that would be more persuasive to the jury. And um, he wasn't allowed. Mm -hmm. But I think that that the fact that they knew Mm. that cowboy imagery resonates and 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 we think of cowboys as good guys um which which historically i mean you you talk in the book you've done so many people have done work on this but you you've talked to about the virginian and that owen whistler you know book that became many movies and different representations and it's it's a kind of a strange mix of you said eastern genteel sort of almost noble way of of interacting like sort of that good guy that would help you who'd ride up on the horse and save the day but then you know he was a hired hand goes out west and then eventually becomes a landowner in in wyoming but that whole mythology of the virginian itself wasn't really based in many true life examples and cowboys themselves were not something you'd really ever want your daughter to date you know um and so it is so interesting Mm -hmm. that the optic of what a cowboy means now, the one thing that that thread that has come through is that self-reliance and individualism that you make such a good point about being um, that sense of freedom, but that's also that sense of like hard-won entitlement, I think. I, I agree. And, and, and again, it's just, uh, you know, myth after myth that, mm-hmm. that's been, because it, <laughs> the entitlement to the land, I mean, this land was in, indigenous land. And uh, it was the settled. And in American Zion, and this, this, I do think that there's a sense of entitlement uh, in other places besides the area that I was focused on, which was Mormon homeland. But, but there was entitlement in the sense that Joseph Smith promised them sacred homeland. So this land that's sacred homeland that's to the Mormon people and to the Southern Paiute is also public land. And so it's this sense of entitlement to public land as well. Um, and, and I think that that's where things become problematic. Um, and and in, in terms of the cowboy as a symbol, the way that we've created it, the way that we've set it up, just as you said, he's genteel, he's fair he's 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 not really western he's eastern he's taking mm-hmm. eastern manners and honorability to, and manners yes. yes and it's and it's a it's a weird it's a weird concoction but then you think of ryan zinke when he got you yeah. know appointed he rides right. down the streets of washington dc on a horse with a cowboy hat yeah. on and you're like this is a military guy and i'm sure you know this was i mean it's Powerful, fascinating, but we're constantly seeing it used and used and used over and over again to send 
these messages that have this long um complicated history well and he is really playing into the whole teddy roosevelt uh um, yes you know because it's the idea of the national parks and well but teddy roosevelt wrote about going west and he was in south dakota north yes and and how that's really where you become a man Mm -hmm. and so he he used that sort of rite of passage Mm. in becoming a cowboy or knowing how to do that rugged you know sort of work um that's what makes a man out of you so Mm -hmm. it's it's got layers there's layers to it there's lots of layers to it and you know so i want to i want to are we ready to move off the cowboy and on to something else (laughs) and we're gonna with that take a quick (laughs) station break (laughs) you are listening to the dirt on the past with co-hosts crystal alegria and nancy mahoney on kgvm bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts we're speaking today with author and historian betsy gaines quammen about her book american zion clive and bundy God and public lands in the West. Okay, so we're going to move away from the cowboy. <laughs> Let's say that, <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit about more about public land, just to kind of um, give more context for this for the the story that you're going to tell as we go on. So. Um, and to give a little more context about public land. So let's talk about the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, and public land management. So the BLM was created in 1946, and it was a, it was Congress created the BLM by merging the General Land Office and the U.S. Grazing Service. So you say in your book, and I love how you say this, I love how you describe the BLM, quote, the BLM's mission was to manage the, um, air quotes, leftovers of federal land, all the places not identified as scenic attractions, such as those managed by the Park Service, or sources of timber, such as those managed by the Forest Service, end quote. So that's a great some, you know, in a sentence about what the BLM does. And this is a huge swath of land that the BLM manages. It um, Most of it is in the West. There's a few BLM parcels in the East, but most of it resides in the West. And as time goes on, there are many restrictions put on this land. And I'm not going to name all the ones you did in the book, all the, the laws and acts, but I just want to mention a couple to give folks a better understanding of some of these Um, laws that were created after that 1946 development of the BLM. So one of those things that Nancy and I really appreciate (laughs) and and work with quite a bit is the 1979 Archaeological Resources Protection Act, which is also referred to as ARPA. And this is a federal law that governs the excavation of archaeological sites on federal and Indian lands in the United States. And the removal and disposition of archaeological collections from those sites. Other laws, like the Federal Land Policy and Management Act of 1976, are also put into place. And with these acts, the BLM was tasked with protecting the ecological integrity of these places, basically. That's what it was doing. And this is kind of where things get a little bit dicey, and people start to question these laws and questions the question these restrictions and these protections, which we see as protections, but not everybody sees these as protections. So can you speak to how people responded to these to these laws and to this creation of this public land and to BLM more recently? 
Yeah, I, that, it's it's really interesting. Basically, what you are referring to is the time that ranchers living in these areas next to BLM uh, faced restrictions, and this had been something that they had not expected or been accustomed to. And so there were restrictions in terms of um, the Taylor Grazing Act, which at first was quite popular. And I think that that was in 1936 because the Taylor Grazing Act, uh, it was really necessary. Land was getting overgrazed and this was a way to manage that. And the people managing the allotments, which were the the leases, the, the federal land leases, were the ranchers themselves. So there wasn't government oversight. It was the ranchers deciding how to um, stock their land, mm-hmm. essentially, okay. uh, or public land, not their land. Yeah. So uh, when you had the advent of the Endangered Species Act, um, the um, FLIPMA, which is the Federal Land Management Policy Act, uh, and NEPA, which is the National Environmental Policy Act, or Protection Act, anyway, I get... I, <laughs> protection. Yeah, yeah. Pr- Protection yeah. Act. Y- you started to have rules and regulations that um, folks that had been ranching this land had not yet needed to adhere to. And there was this real large pushback, which what really got people angry was uh, the the when BLM's land started being assessed for wilderness. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so wilderness study areas were areas that were 5,000 acres or larger that were roadless. And so you had people who, you know, hearing wilderness, which is the most restrictive um, designation, it really sent people in over the edge. They that were was furious. the tipping point for yeah. a lot of them. And, and the beginning of the sagebrush rebellion. Right. Right. And so, so those restrictions, and I think that, you know, just in terms of what we're seeing today, People don't like restrictions. I mean, they don't like mask mandates. They don't like stay at home. And that's been really weird because in 2020, I talked to Ammon Bundy uh, because I thought, oh, God, COVID's going to be the next mal here. That that was really my thought because yeah. when you get down to it, these the, what they're pushing back on are affronts to liberty. Mm-hmm. And so the the laws that were put in place in this many in the 70s were affronts to liberty. And we're seeing that same anger manifested, um, you know, sort of coming out in regards to COVID. And so Ammon has become really, really involved in the quote unquote medical freedom movement. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a big anti-vaxxer. Uh, and... Um, yeah, he he's taken this this you know sort of he's become he, they, they were very focused on public lands and and that's where they came to you know came into notoriety and now he's really rode that and has sort of established himself as this pro liberty figure. Mm-hmm. So it with the roots that go back right back to what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not surprising that, you know, he would have moved right into the to the anti-vax and the, the you know, all the mask restrictions and all that. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. yeah. And he's running for governor of Idaho now. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, His brother be Ryan it. ran for governor of, um, of Nevada in 20. 20- 
18, I think. And did not. He didn't win. Right. And so we'll watch this other new race. Um, It's fascinating to me because um, a lot of the BLM lands were also the leftovers in the sense that they weren't homesteaded. And I think so much of the potential that they could have been become private land and that they were adjacent to other private properties, the sense that they could have come, you know, out of the public domain into the private, that all went away when you you changed the general land office and the grazing service merged to the BLM. And increasingly over time, right, more federal oversight. But we do have those protections going back to the beginning of the Forest Service. And you mentioned the Taylor Grazing Act and those things. But it, it seems like that tipping point is really and the sagebrush rebellions. And you have Ronald Reagan really riding a lot of that into office into into 1980 and being really um, aware that there was a lot of support because he was also for small government, less government, and that played right into right. these ideas, right? States so there's rights. there's all this yeah. overlap, right? But but they, you know, you mentioned in your book and other people have talked about that this idea of releasing those large tracks that we see on a map that are all. Um, ostensibly public land, BLM land that aren't necessarily even in a park or anything. But if you were to give those to the states that they are contained within the borders within, people were saying, well, those would probably go into private hands pretty quickly. And as you've pointed out, Bundy and so many others who graze on public lands have an amazing subsidy, right? They are being subsidized from the government when they're paying it, subsidized even more when they're not. But it is a it is a government subsidy that provides them with access to all this extra land that they would not be able to have to graze their cows if that land became private. And so it's a really interesting nut to look at from the outside that there's this no anger really against private landholders because this idea of entitlement, privacy, keep the government out. But the anger is all on the government who's providing actually quite minimal restrictions, except in the case of wilderness designation, which is still quite a small part. And you can overall. graze on wilderness. I mean, it's you can't build roads. And and there's a there's a wonderful book um, by... So the cowboy goes in and rounds up. So what's the problem? I well, it's it. because... because <laughs> and this is something that the um, Jed Rogers, who's a historian, he's fantastic. And he's at um, the Utah... Historical Society. And he's written a book, and I think it's called Roads in the Wilderness, about the religious significance of roads in Utah and how they represented uh, pilgrimages or, or journeys that the Mormon settlers took across some of the most unhospitable landscape in it wasn't settled for a reason it these are not easy places to settle so they moved across landscape and they have old trails that that represent their fortitude and um and so he talks about sacralizing landscapes through trailblazing and so that's one of the reasons why these roadless areas were so offensive his point being that Mm. they they were saying these areas were roadless where in fact they were storied places of Mm. mormon you know move mormon families moving across harsh landscapes so i think that's a really interesting book and and well worth reading i i loved that book but um in terms of there was another thing, Nancy, that you mentioned, and and I'm trying to think of. Um, uh, was it having to do with grazing fees? I, I think oh yeah, the, the, go the, ahead. The fact, yes. So um, yeah, they are really subsidized. Um, I think a cow calf payer now is 
cheaper than a buck fifty. So a mom and, and um, calf on public land per month, and, and it's called an animal unit an AUM animal unit monthly is less than a dollar fifty. It's very inexpensive, but this is something I've thought a lot about because there's a huge effort to give it to the states and and Utah politicians have been particularly interested in this. Mike Lee, Mitt Romney, um, they do not believe that public land should be federal. And so it would be incredibly expensive for someone like Cliven Bundy to buy his allotments, even though he doesn't, they're, they're not his allotments, but he's still grazing on them. It would be incredibly expensive for a rancher who does not make very much money. I, I mean, you, it's very hard to make a livelihood as a rancher. They wouldn't be the people who could afford this land. The uber wealthy could afford this land. And the truth is, one of the largest landowners in the country is the church. They're one of the largest landowners. Mm-hmm. So, so, so in Utah, do they believe that the church would buy most of the? I don't. I, land? I mean, that I don't know. But I, it is very interesting to think that those pushing for privatization, mm-hmm. uh, uh, many of them are affiliated with um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, who is aggressively buying land. Uh, Bill Gates and the church are two of the biggest landowners in the United States. So I wonder, I mean, I'm not, I I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, um, but I, but I, I do wonder if, if the church thinks that by privatizing public lands, they could be Mm. in the position to buy them because Mm. it would be extremely expensive to, to buy public lands. It's just fascinating that all of the uh, vitriol at the federal government and their management of it without any real recognition among certain groups, that they're getting such a phenomenal deal out of this. Um, And and just on a side tangent, you also discuss briefly, which is so important in there, there's just that whole concept of wilderness anyway is so strange. And I think you just brought that point right home by bringing up the book. We're talking about these movement through the lands, the marks left in, you know, trying to make trails, forge trails, and and then to have roadless areas. I mean, we know there are no places untrammeled by man. And that whole idea itself is is a bit problematic. Um, But that's a completely different podcast. So, no, but, a, but, a, but a very interesting one. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I do have to say that I think that that has been a really rich discussion in conservation groups. And, you know, Bill Cronin, yes. who was the first one to really to bring that it. out there, yeah. is now on the board of the Wilderness Society. So I think it's really, I mean, wilderness as a designation has a wonderful um benefit to ecosystem health but i do think the idea of wilderness deserves to be unpacked and it Mm -hmm. and it's getting unpacked Mm -hmm. um you know especially in looking at wilderness that concept as a white male you know thorovian or emersonian maybe or you know right right these guys with with (laughs) completely one of those white guys that are no longer completely disregarding um the indigenous uh, settlement of these places or or indigenous Use, use and movement of these through all the time for their livelihood. Right. Exactly. So, um, so we know that that's. But I, I have still been in some circles where I have mistakenly said yes that the um, it's fascinating this invention of wilderness as a concept, and I'll get blank stares and realize I'm not reading the room correctly. So there's still a lot <laughs> oh, <it's>, of <laughs> discussions. Well, and, and there are certain conservationists who get really angry. Um, it, it. I. I. I don't feel like it's dangerous to teach history. I mean, and that's what you all represent. So I, I, 
Anyway, right. we all read, clean. Read your William Cronin out there, folks. We, yeah, That's we cling to a our very, myths. Very good story. We do. We so, do. Yeah. yeah. So um, getting back to your book and all of the lovely tangents that we could go on from it, um, <laughs> I want to I talk about the Bundy family, which, which features so prominently in the book. And it's through this lens of understanding them as a family and, and uh, historically that you make your argument. So tell us a little bit about the history of the Bundy family and, and even the ancestral history um, up through today, as well as how you came to know them and, and really why you chose them as this central thread for your story. So I was working on Mormon settlement as a um, topic of my dissertation, and I initially started looking at the collaborative effort between the then part the the emerging park service the brand new park service and the um, Mormon settlers in and around the Virgin River by Zion Canyon and it's a really really great story it was very collaborative it, I I think it was the only collaborative uh, land you know sort of protection and and park designation in that area things went downhill from there but uh, but it was but it was very it was very harmonious and uh, and I think the testament is that it's named Zion National Park I mean it, it the, the National Park Service went ahead and you, they use that yep. they use that um, designation so uh, so it as I said it it became less collaborative after that and when the Bundys yeah I I didn't know about the Bundys until the 2014. Actually, maybe I'd heard about, I know they hadn't paid grazing fees, but you know, as I say in the book, I thought these guys were outliers and it turns out that they are not, um, you know, just looking at how their actions, I really feel have been given motivation to this ever, ever growing militia movement that, that we saw at the Capitol on January 16th. I, I think the, the Bundys are a really big piece of that. This recent January 6th. Um, January movement. 6th. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, okay. the January right. 6th No, there is a line. I think you've made it. Yeah. So yeah. We'll, get, we'll get to that yeah. later. But Sorry, yes. did I say I, January 6th I know that's what you meant. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I... Felt like it went on for 10 days. Well, yeah. I did. Yeah. God, it feels like it's still, still going, going on. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so in any case, I went and I called the family I, on a landline. I, they were listed. Wow. And so I called and talked to Carol, Cliven's wife, and they invited me down. Wow. And I went down. Actually, it was it, they were so nice to me. Mm-hmm. And I went to their house and I sat in their living room under a painting by that artist who did all the Trump Swamp paintings. Do you know who I'm talking about? He's he's actually yes. LDS too. I don't know yes. who this is. That, well, uh, it's I in did, my yeah. book. Okay. I can't remember yeah. his name off okay. the top of my head. But he he was an artist that that glorified Trump. But he also okay. painted Clive and Bundy. And Clive and oh, Bundy wrapped yes. in a flag. Yes, yes, yes. And uh-huh. so I I sat in their living room and I spoke to them both. And then Ryan came in. And then and so Ryan is the brother of. Ammon. Ammon. Yeah. And so Ammon and Carol are married. No. no. Cliven. Cliven. And Carol, Carol. are married. Okay. Ammon is their son. Ammon is Ammon their is son. Their, uh, her stepson. Okay. He was married before. Okay. Ammon and Ryan have a different mom. Okay. I see. Uh, and so, and then Buddha, who is Brian Cavalier, who is who was Cliven's bodyguard. Okay. 
And I've talked to them for a very long time about uh, Mormon worldview and about their ancestors, one of which was Nephi Johnson, who was, according to the history, the first white man to explore Zion Canyon, the, the park. And he married Cliven's great-grandmother, Cliven's grandfather, his third wife, she had lost her husband, and he spiritually adopted her whole family when he married her. And so Cliven's grandfather is Johnny Jensen, and um, and but it was his. So I should. I'm going in so many directions. <laughs> uh, Nephi Johnson was a big figure in that area, and okay. he participated in the Mountain Meadows massacre. Mm-hmm. So you know, here he was exploring Zion Canyon. He participated in the mm-hmm. um, Mountain Meadows massacre. He fled during the uh, w- when they were cracking down on polygamy, and and went to Mexico and moved around the area. Johnny Jensen. Uh, was Cliven's grandfather, but Cliven's father was the one who bought the property, I think, in 1947. So Cliven makes this big claim that, you know, we, we've been on this land for all this time. Well, he's had ancestors that have been in and around the area, but the place he is right now, his father bought. Two generations. Right, yeah. right. Okay. So, so, that, so when, I, when I talked to him, you know, that, we were talking about that. We were talking about the spiritual significance of the Constitution, mm. which, which has deep roots in early church theology, um, and the family, as I said, they were very nice to me. And, you know, it wasn't until driving away that I thought, wow, these mm. people have motivated a dangerous group of people. Mm-hmm. Can I briefly ask you about something that I found fascinating in the book that I hadn't realized before was that Joseph Smith, the originator of, of Mormonism, um, had ideas about who Native Americans actually were, going back to biblical times and Noah and his son Ham, who was cast out after seeing Noah, you know, doing something he shouldn't have been or in a compromising way. And and then this idea, you said sometime like in the Middle Ages, became associated with darker skin. And so there was this sense that this was sort of a lost tribe that had been mentioned in the Bible, all Native Americans. And it's interesting because in the early, you know, 1800s, 1830s, 1840s, you know, there were so many ideas, myths of mound builders, archaeologists didn't know what they were doing. You know, there were all these ideas about who were these Native people in the Americas that, you know, before hadn't been explained in the Bible and things like that and what that meant. Um, So I find that fascinating because you also mentioned early on in the introduction that, you know, when you bring up anything to Clive and Bundy about other people's um, rights to the land or sense of sacredness to the land or use of the land, when you mention anything about Native Americans, it just doesn't, it doesn't sit with him. And I wonder if there's this sense that because of the way they perceive who Native Americans might have been, that it can all be explained away as still being part of this Mormon Mm -hmm. um, philosophy, or prophecy rather, Mormon prophecy that it was supposed to be for them. So even though this was a group of people who had been sort of cast out and ended up, ultimately they're just bringing them back around into the church so you don't actually owe anything to indigenous people Talk about this land. That's a really, really interesting question. First of all, I think that this idea of Ham and um, 
uh, Noah's son, son Ham being cast out and considered of color was something that came about later than the Middle Ages. I think it was in and around people trying to justify slavery, um, the British and um, American sort of religious figures. I, and I and I think that's right. I, I, I That's what I recall, that that idea would have happened right around then. Um, Joseph Smith never specifically that I know of talked about ham, but he did have this mythology of the tribes of Israel. Lost tribes of Israel. Yeah. yeah. And so in um, the Book of Mormon, they're known as Lamanites. That's right. You yeah. talked about then two groups, the Lamanites and the Nephites. And the Nephites right? Yeah, the Lamanites and the Nephites, who over centuries fought and, you know, sometimes one was in power, sometimes another was in power. Uh, but the Lamanites were punished with dark skin. Were they two sons of Ham? They, or? Of Laman. Of Laman, okay. I think, no, Laman no, no. was the Lamanite. Nephi was the son. Who was the father? That's what I'm saying. I wasn't sure, but they were both to be considered maybe occupying the Americas? Yeah, so okay. Laman and Nephi were two brothers who came to the Americas, and they were the ones who created the Nephites and the Lamanites. According to the Mormon According theology. to the Book of Mormon. Okay. And and the Book of Mormon is literal, so it's a history. Mm-hmm. So so what you're talking about is absolutely right, that, that, that uh, Clive and Bundy would see indigenous people as Lamanites, and, and all that means theologically. There was a belief that Joseph Smith put forth— in, it was in the Book of Mormons and he, Mormon, and he also talked about it, that in converting indigenous people or Lamanites, they would become white. White and delightsome is the quote. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing so, you are hastening the second coming, coming. You're hastening revelation. You're hastening the coming of God. Fascinating. And mm-hmm. so, so there is that theological belief. Now, with Cliven, I actually think... His history starts with the first Mormon settler. And I think it's less a, a, a conscious sort of belief in, you know, indigenous uh, people are going to be converted and that's going to usher in the coming of, or the second coming. Um, I actually believe that he only thinks about, because when I talked to him, he said, you got to remember, it was, you know, when the first, he, I mean, I'll never forget this because I, I, I I did a TED talk about it, or a TEDx talk about it, but, you know, he when the first Mormon settler, and he, he was kind of talking about his ancestor, so I had in mind, he was talking about Nephi Johnson, came to this area, and his horse drank out of the Virgin River. That's when it became his. That's when he claimed ownership of it. And, and that goes back to laws, I mean, just in terms of um, utilizing, what is it, um, Oh gosh, something use. Yeah, it's it's the yeah it's the use of rights, the use of fruct laws, the use right laws. That's how, and that goes back to Smith, I believe. Uh, is that right? That you have to use the land, you have to and, use and you have the to land. be using, it. and that's kind of was the basis for the Homestead Act, to right? Improve right. It but that goes much farther back to England of that. If you're using it, then you have you you then exert your claim beneficial oh, use. Beneficial use. It's the first beneficial use. So he go, he talks about that in terms of the legalese, but he or, or the legal aspects of it. But but what he also fails to remember is that the day before the Mormon horse drank out of the Virgin River, 
it was a southern Paiute River. Right. Mm-hmm. And so and so that's his And he way. won't he won't hear that. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> when even. you say that, that's just not a that that it that it's doesn't not irrelevant it because, doesn't compute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't see their use as maybe considered the same as a beneficial use. Exactly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. Are are you finished with that thought with with that um, kind of explaining the um, the Bundy family? Do you want to say any more about the Bundys? No, okay. I and I, I, I forgive me um, for being a little bit rusty on some of these. No, terms. no, 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 you're, yeah, you're no. fine. I know how it is when you've written so, something a couple of years ago. It's yeah. just not right there. It, it's not for me it, either. Yeah. So what so what made you um use the Bundys though in this book? Like what was it that meeting that you had with them? Did their central um the the way that they are um focused in on this movement or what was it that kind of drew you to the Bundy family? Well, it was the way that they used Mormon theology to justify their war. Mm, And, you know, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I became really interested in the way religious religious worldview informs the way we relate to the land. And in the case of um, the Bundys, the way that they related to the land had very much to do with early church theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, This you know the idea the constitution is sacred that it's their sacred responsibility to uphold it that they have a special relationship to the constitution these are all things that joseph smith talked to early church adherents about in in particular focus i mean he was focused on the first amendment so the the freedom to practice religion so this is this is a different take um, but uh, but there is a prophecy that that's um, apocryphal, most likely, that Joseph Smith said that it it's going to there's going to come a time when the Constitution is hanging by a thread, and essentially it's up to the Mormon people to to uphold the Constitution and fight a corrupt government. So this is something that he has really embraced, and and his sons have embraced this this idea that they are on a mission a religious mission to protect the Constitution. And because they don't think that the federal government can own public land, mm-hmm. they're, they're fighting when the Constitution is hanging by a thread. Mm-hmm. Now, this case, I mean, it, this has been brought up to various, it, it, you know, during various legal, um, that this case has come up over and over again, and the federal government can indeed own public land, mm-hmm. but the Bundys Thanks. think that they know the Constitution better than constitutional scholars. Right. And that has to do with the fact that they, essentially the Constitution in the Mormon Church is part of a sacred canon. Hmm. And and that's one of the benefits, I guess, of being an American religion. Hmm. Wow. Or, or one of the aspects. Right, right. And the Constitution, so they wear the Constitutions in their pockets. Yeah, they do. And, um, <laughs> and talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead, but talk a little bit about that Constitution and how they, how they use it and, and, um, and why they wear it in their pockets and why that they just adhere to this. I'm not sure I have a good answer yeah. for that, yeah. um, uh, other than you know their their nifty little pocket-sized <laughs> constitutions. Uh, they were, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about the history. Yeah. So, so those constitutions were uh, 
manufactured or they, they were printed rather um, by an organization run by a man named Cleon Skousen, okay. who was a Mormon and um, also had these very deep beliefs about the Mormons or sort of the, the Mormon culture and their their role in upholding the Constitution. He was a he was affiliated affiliated with the John Birch Society. He w- he wrote a book among other books called The Naked Communist. He was very much uh, politically in line with McCarthy, as was um, Ezra Taft Benson, who. I believe he was in the Eisenhower administration, and he was a prophet with the Mormon Church. And so, Cleon Skousen and Ezra Tapp Benson were major right-wing um, agitators in the church. So much so that Cleon was in trouble with the church. I mean, I, I, he he may have at some point he, and I'm again I'm forgetting the word was censured or. or uh, uh, anyway, race yeah. that. I just, I, Cleon Skousen was a rabble rouser. Okay. And he was a, a right wing rabble rouser. Mm-hmm. And so he's the one, it was the um, Freeman Institute, and it okay. later became a, a known as another um, name. But when he started it, it was the Freeman Institute, mm-hmm. and he created these pocket constitutions. Okay. So there's a lot of overlapping between um, sort of the the political will that can can draw on religion, can draw on sense of land use and rights, but it's it's a lot of this very um, libertarian individual anti-government kind of rhetoric, which you know a lot of it then movements can can come upon each other and sort of reinforce each other. I want to take this back around and zoom out a little bit. But um, I love this chapter in your book you call Two Gods. And for me, it's, you know, it's talking about this, this, you know, essence of what your research is about, which is about religion, belief, theology, sacredness, um, and land and concepts of, of what makes it, um, you know, sacred or important. And, and you say to Joseph Smith, land became sacred through human industry you know, what you were going to do to put it to beneficial use, to improve it, to change it, you know. Um, Whereas at this very same time, as Joseph Smith is even becoming a prophet, right, and starting his religion in the East Coast, we have Emerson, you know, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And of course, he has a very different view of religion, spirituality, and landscape. And then you say to Emerson, by contrast, lands without the imprint of humans were divine. And this is very much plays into kind of Muir and the untrammeled and, and, and Billy, you know, Cronin saying, you know, it used to be that wilderness were those scary places where the yeah. devil dwelt, whereas then it became the place where you find God, you know, when you go on your own. And that's what Emerson was about. So we have Smith and Emerson uh, at this very same moment in time having very different messages about sacredness, God, and land in America. Take us now to where we are and and understand where we are now in the West with those ideas and and how their histories have trickled into not just the Bundys, but kind of where we are right now. Just muse on that for me, because I love how that chapter kind of gave us the historical grounding for very different viewpoints. Yeah, I think that we're 
really reevaluating things right now. I I'm working on a new book that's that's looking at the way we perceive the West and the way we perceive lands. And um, I, I think there are a, a number of things that are happening. I, I think that conservationists are having to look at their history and their their heroes and, um, you know, take them down a notch. I mean, John Muir with the Sierra Club, I, I don't know if you've heard about what's happening with the Sierra Club, but there there's a lot of internal uh sort of discussion about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John Muir and um, and his history being fraught. Uh, he can't stand that pedestal, you know. Well, there's anymore. there's those that I mean, it's it's been fascinating. There there are those that um, want to completely throw him out and not even have John Muir be a part of the Sierra Club anymore. Uh, and there are those saying he really did uh, throughout his life he evolved. And so I, I think that, and, and I'm not taking, um, and it, you know, I, I don't, I don't have enough of a, um, a dog in that fight to to take one side or another. But I, I, th- I think it's really important um, to give the environmental heroes or the conservation heroes a, a hard look, um, and uh, but also to keep them in the context of their time. I, I think that's really important. I, I know that Ed Abbey has been taken to task yes. quite a bit. And uh, and there's a a wonderful book called Desert Cabal by Amy, Amy Irvine, which you know really looks at at his um, legacy, mm-hmm. and um, she's fantastic. And uh, and so you know that said, um, Desert Solitary. When I read that book, I became unbelievably enamored of of that part of the world. I mean, it was one of the reasons why I fell so head over heels uh, in with that part of the West. So again, you know, these are imperfect people, um, but they, but they need to be looked at. And, and, um, in terms of the way we view things now, I'm so afraid that there is a culture in our country of having so little understanding of the West that they come to consume it. And, and I think we saw it like crazy when people finally got out of their houses and drove their sprinter vans or their, you know, whatever to the West, to the national parks, and they were absolutely inundated. And I was talking to a woman who was on the Pole Bridge entry gate uh, of Glacier. Have you all ever been to Pole Bridge? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty remote. Yes. And... It what people flocked there because it was one of the places that was unticketed. So because it was so crowded, you had your pass and you had your parking permit, but you also needed a ticket. Yes, they were trying to regulate it. So people decided that they were going to go to the pole bridge entrance, and it was um, a gravel road, and they were driving their rental cars there. They had no understanding of where they. I mean, this is one of the most important pieces of the crown of the continent ecosystem. It, it is absolutely exquisite it's a it's a uh, a, a matrix of forest service land park land uh um, sovereign land at blackfeet um, private land and uh, the bob marshall wilderness it has grizzly bears wolves lynx wolverine mountain lions i mean it's unbelievable it's unbelievably wild and she said 
people would come. They had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea how to how to access the land. There was toilet paper everywhere. People oh, were parked no. at every single stream access, trailhead, you know, any little place that they could pull off and they would camp. This is because of the pandemic. Because they, they were, were trying just to get trying in to get to everything this was so shut down in Glacier. Of, uh, and yeah. wilderness, uh, you know, it's will right. it's like the wild, let's go, you know, to nature. And so but there was so little understanding. And one of the things she talked about was that there was a line of people hiking to Grinnell Glacier, which is the one of the glaciers that's gr- receding. Yeah. So that they could do a selfie there and put it on their Instagram. Like they, they waited an hour for hours to take a picture of the Grinnell Glacier so they could put it up on social media, which to me is so profoundly weird that you're going into a park maybe for the first time, you're escaping COVID. I get that. You want to you wanna get out of the house, finally mm-hmm. be in somewhere that you don't need to wear a mask. But you're so ill-prepared for what you're experiencing and you go to an iconic glacier that's melting because of climate change and you put it up on your Instagram. It all just seems so discordant. You know what I mean? Yes. This is very much what my husband's art is about. And um, when he, after they did Glacier as a collaboration with two other artists, he went to Rocky Mountain National Park and he said, it was so crowded. Yeah. And this was all pre-COVID, but he, he said there, he just, he would never go back. Yeah. And so he's he's always seeking, you know, he's gone to Antarctica now. He's just always seeking remote <laughs> places. But he's going there to document, to witness, to tell the story in collaboration with scientists. And, and so I love the work that he does. Um, and people are very fascinated by what he's doing but he even says you know he's getting to an age where there's only so many more times he'll be able to get to these places and so it's it's it is so interesting to hear then that juxtaposition of these these people wanting to access something but having no idea what they're getting into um so tell us a little bit about what it is you're working on now so we can we can kind of um end this discussion with where your research is going now and your your next book project well i'm writing a book called a true west sorting realities on the far side of america mm-hmm. and it's about what you're talking about it's about mythology it's essentially what are the altars that we're building on our myth museums uh how do that. we how do we <laughs> as the west you know as we're living in the west today what is it that we're that were enshrining yeah. um, that's dangerous and yeah. perhaps metastasizing. And what are we as Westerners um, doing to be back in relationship with each other? I, I think that the thing that I love about this project is I spent the Trump years being really angry at people. And um, I, I have had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in rural Western communities in conversation with people. And I am getting such a different perspective. I am feeling so much less angry and more connected. Um, and it's, it's, this book has been a blast because it has a lot to do with history because, you know, uh, the Western history is filled with mythology. And, uh, and also it's talking about climate change, pandemic, 
um, and political polarization, as well as the influx of people moving into this area and really mm-hmm. changing the culture. So I've had these wide-ranging conversations, and I know this sounds like I'm I, my topic's quite broad, but it's all interconnected. I mean, it's all it absolutely yeah, tied that. together. Mm-hmm. Um, so my conversations hit on each of these things. And I've had the opportunity to talk to, I'm just going to, I'm a Buddhist monk in the San Luis Valley, which is um, a, a Spanish land grant um, uh, series of communities in Western Colorado. A woman who has left the church in, uh, she's, she grew up in um, LDS and she's left the church and she now lives in Escalante, Utah, which is right on the um, monument mm-hmm. and talks about how she's too conservative for all the bougie people moving in and too, um, too liberal for her Mormon family, but mm-hmm. that she can occupy both spaces and wow. she kind of gets both, you know, communities. Yeah. And I've talked to this fabulous rancher in Terry, Montana, who spent the first hour we were together telling me how much he hated Democrats and he hates the government and he's collecting guns. And do I want to go to his ranch? And so I, sp- I went and spent a weekend at his ranch. And I wow. have to tell you, I adore this man. He took me to the Evelyn Cameron Museum, which is nice. amazing. Yeah. They actually have two. Um, and I, I, he's now just, I just think the world of this human. And he's given me faith in, in reconciliation and relationship building. Um, but I've also spent time with militia people who um, have left the militia and left this Christian nationalist um, sort of culture in Eastern Washington. Um, I've, oh gosh, I, I can't even tell. I've, I've met this fabulous guy who grew up also in Mormon culture who is trying to put together a big proposal. It's not a national monument. I think it's a national preservation area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and he's trying to do that in um, the, you know, outside of Idaho Falls. Mm-hmm. So it's, it just is. I mean, I, I, oh, and then I've I talked to Jill Mamaday, who is Scott, F, um, F. Scott, oh, Scott Mamaday's um, daughter, wow. and I've talked to Chris Latre, who's this oh, yeah. fabulous Métis poet over in um, Missoula. Um, oh my wow. God! I just I've had so many. I mean, I've I've probably talked to about a hundred people. And are you stalking them all on Facebook? How are you getting to know them? <laughs> I go into I, I go into communities and say like it's all started with my friend Alvin, who's a farmer in uh, Glendive, and he said, "Meet my friend and meet my friend." He worked for the railroad for all Lovely. these many years, and yeah. and I've just I've yep. just been and and I also interviewed this fabulous um, Maasai. He's now a naturalized um, U.S. citizen. He's in Spokane. He's a Maasai artist who um, did part of the mural for the Black Lives Matter um, oh, in, in Spo- downtown Spokane. So um, I just, I've been able to meet with people who live in the West yeah. and ask them about how they see things, what is important to them, what are they hopeful about, what are they worried about. Um, and it's really been one of the coolest things I've ever done. And I think that's the only way we're going to get back to a place of understanding is just to talk to each other. We have to. And just to build, rebuild our relationships. We have to not be afraid and yeah. make the effort. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Just going into communities and, and doing archaeology has given me opportunities to go into small rural towns. And I have found it just so productive. And again, I feel the same way you do that. I have some hope because you find common ground with these very interesting people who initially you think you would have nothing in common with, or they approach you thinking they'll have nothing in common with you. And then you build trust and Mm -hmm. it's, 
it's and you helpful. find out you do have more common ground than you you think you would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I will say that you know, I've 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 come up against Q. I've come up mm-hmm. against Christian nationalists. I've come up against um, or QAnon people, mm-hmm. Christian nationalists. Um, that I know that that there is going to be. You know, there are people that you cannot yeah. get to. Yeah. But but when I talked to this man that I was mentioning, he started out um, telling me he'd been radicalized, and and that to me means something um, because I know what people who are radicalized are capable of doing, mm-hmm. and when. I went to his ranch and talked to him, and he wrote me the most beautiful letter afterwards. He just, he's not been radicalized, um, but he just wrote, if you and I were in charge of everything, we would get so much done, which is <laughs> hilarious because we were so politically different, but we liked each other. And then he said, keep me in your heart. You'll always be in mine. Mm-hmm. And that gave me so much hope, and that's what we need to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think we are all looking forward to your next book, and we hope that every politician in the West reads it yes. um, <laughs> and makes better, well-informed decisions um, because of it, right? And yes, um, yes. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe somewhere down the line you start your own podcast as well because it sounds like you have some really interesting people to talk to yeah. or we'll have you back on this yeah no I, should. <laughs> you, I think you guys have you run the podcast show I, i'll leave it to you okay well we'll just have you back yeah <laughs> so betsy there's so much more we'd love to discuss with you but we have a last run out of time so thanks so much for taking the time today and um, american zion is such an important read we encourage everyone out there to find a copy and we'll again have links to that on um, the website so we encourage you to also check out Betsy's website, um, which is www.betsygainesquaman.com and watch for her next book. When will it be out, Betsy? When is the... It's the fall of 2023. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's so... not too far in the future. Yeah, I know. A little, yeah, <laughs> a little, a little too, too soon for you. Is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. pressure's on. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> well, thank you, Betsy, so much for being here today. Thank you, Crystal and Nancy. It was fun. It was yeah, really fun. And, I'm, fun. So, and yeah. I'm so excited about your work, and I'm just, I'm a huge fan. Good. Wonderful. <laughs> we're, we're so glad to hear that. <laughs> well, thank you, Betsy, and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love the podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We love those five-star reviews. So thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The, the Dirt, Dirt on, on the, the Past. past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to John Chadwell for help getting this podcast out in the world. <laughs>